The U.S. isn't the only country with offbeat things in cities and in the landscape, and it's only fair we look at other countries as well. For our first trip abroad here on Conspiracy Clearinghouse, we'll look at one of my favorite countries, Spain, in this the first of what will be two Spain travelogue episodes. In this one, we'll look at the big three, Madrid, Barcelona, and Valencia. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Spain is a constitutional monarchy, very Catholic, but still a secular parliamentary democracy. Second largest and fourth most populous in the EU, it has the 14th largest economy in the world. It's been inhabited for at least 42,000 years, and over that time has seen Iberians, Celts, Celtiberians, Vascones, Turdentani, Phoenicians, Carthaginians, Romans, Vandals, and Visigoths, It was under Arab Muslim rule for 700 years when it was a major hub of trade, learning, and multiculturalism and had a large Jewish population, and then a Christian takeover known as the Reconquista in the late 1400s, and in 1492, the new Christian monarchs sent Christopher Columbus to try and find another route to India. He failed at that, but he did find the Western Hemisphere. Spain was home to the Inquisition, became the dominant power in the world for a spell, colonizing so many countries that Spanish is still the second most spoken native language in the world after Mandarin. It was a fascist dictatorship under Francisco Franco from 1939 until his death in 1975, and then the country pretty much did an immediate about-face and embraced democracy in 1978 with a new constitution and has been chugging along ever since. There's a lot to see here, varied landscapes, varied cities with centuries of many, many different influences, completely unique architecture and dining habits, the fourth largest number of UNESCO sites, 49, and the second most visited country in the world. And while it's a kingdom, it is also a loose collection of autonomous and semi-autonomous regions and cities. We're going to be looking at three of them. The first one is Madrid, which is a city and a region. Madrid. The first place we'll stop is the Comunidad de Madrid, which is the capital city, plus the surrounding 30 to 50 kilometers or so, pretty much smack dab in the middle of the country, and which holds 6.1 million people. The city's nickname is Villa del Oso y el Madroño, or the City of the Bear and the Strawberry Tree, both of which are depicted on the city's coat of arms, along with seven stars. 
This comes from a misreading of the word Madrillenos, which is a strawberry tree, and where some people in the 13th century thought the name Madrid came from. Strawberries were also a big local industry at the time. This was compounded by the notion back then that the city had previously been called Ursa, which means bear, and the seven stars on the coat of arms of the stars of the Big Dipper or Ursa Major. However, the name Madrid probably comes either from an old Arabic word for stream or a Celtic word for ford, but people are going to think what they think, no matter what the evidence is. One of the most unusual things in town is the Fountain of the Fallen Angel, or Angel Caído, located in Parque de Buen Retiro, right in the center of the city. Placed 666 meters above sea level, this is the only public monument in the world to Lucifer, the angel who fell from grace and thus heaven. It shows the bright boy looking up in horror as he realizes God is casting him down and the fountain around is decorated with devils and reptiles. It's not a, gee, isn't Lucifer cool kind of a thing, but rather a nod to John Milton's Paradise Lost, made by Ricardo Belever for the 1878 World's Fair in Paris, where the Statue of Liberty, the Telephone, and the Braille Alphabet all made their debuts. The statue was later relocated here so that the public could enjoy it. The last time I was in Madrid, this part of the park where the statue sits had pretty much been taken over by hustlers and drug dealers, so kind of appropriate in a way. Two kilometers to the west, over by Plaza Mayor, there's another public sculpture that's a wry nod to the Satan statue. Called Air Crash, it shows a winged man falling headfirst into the top of a building. Sculptor Miguel Angaruiz Beato says it is not, in fact, Lucifer, just a winged man. Other people think they know better, saying no, it is Lucifer, or maybe it's Icarus. Others opt for the fallen angel from Led Zeppelin's Swan Song, recorded during their physical graffiti sessions, but which never actually made it onto that or any other album. Though the song remains technically unreleased and unfinished, though you can find it on the internet, it lent its name to the band's Swan Song record label, which lasted from 1974 to 1983, which released Zeppelin's last four albums, as well as works by Bad Company, Dave Edmonds, Maggie Bell, and Pretty Things, just to name a few. The sculpture is five floors up, so it's pretty hard to see from street level, but it does jut out a bit. A mere 280 meters away, you can pop into Sabrino de Botin, founded in 1725 and the longest continuously operating restaurant in the world. They also have a flame oven that is constantly kept burning so as to maintain the correct temperature. Specialties include suckling pig and sopa de ajo, an egg poached in chicken broth flavored with garlic and a touch of sherry. Hemingway used to hang out here a lot and put it in a couple of his works, and artist Francisco de Goya used to be a waiter here. It's not the cheapest eatery in town, but hey, what price history, eh? All around the capital, you'll see these iron security bollards, sort of big, fat, wide poles that pop up, preventing cars from entering a street. One day, a local mathematician, Jose Angel Mercia, noticed one of them over near Segovia Bridge was decorated with 40 asymmetrical lines. It struck him, and he took a picture and posted it on his Instagram account. He thought the lines were grouped in a strange way. One, then a space, then a group of 12 lines, then a space, then two, then a space, then 13, and three, and nine. Putting those numbers into the online encyclopedia of integer sequences, OEIS, revealed nothing. So he asked the online hive mind for help, sticking the picture up on Twitter. The tweet got over 600. 
hundred replies. Eventually, so much ruckus was made over this design that it got news stations interested. Maybe it had something to do with the nearby bridge. Maybe it was some sort of complicated time-telling scheme or a mathematical formula. One person thought it might be the pattern of light coming from a lighthouse, or was it some kind of weird industrial age crop circle? One woman wrote a piano piece using the number sequence, which is quite lovely, and a journalist went to the source, the company that made the bollard in the first place, Forjas Estilo. They said the design was called the Rijo Bajo, which is a stream in Malaga, and the design had something to do with the Fibonacci sequence. This is when every new number in the sequence is the sum of the preceding two and starts as 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, and then basically goes on forever. And this mathematical pattern is found naturally occurring throughout nature. However, the sequence 1, 12, 2, 13, 3, 9 does not match that pattern. So what was going on? Was the company lying? If so, what were they trying to cover up? Or were they just trying to sound smart? But a week later, the company tracked down the architect Victor Munoz Sanz, who had designed it. He said his original concept had been rejected as too plain, so he started thinking about the material the bollards were made of, iron. So, he thought, if the center of the circle is Madrid, in which directions are there major iron-producing towns? And not just in Spain, like there's a whole town in Brazil built in 1928 by the American Ford Motor Company called Fordlandia that was abandoned in 1934, and Zlin here in the Czech Republic in eastern Moravia. In fact, Sands became very interested in Zlin, a city that was pretty much built to spec around the Batya shoe factory. He even wrote his thesis about Batya. You can learn more about Zlin in an episode of the Prague Times podcast, link in the episode notes. So that's the design. All of those lines point from Madrid to various important iron-producing towns around the world. Though it is used on many of the bollards around Madrid, only one of them actually correctly points to those far-off iron towns. But unfortunately, no one can remember which one it is, as both the designer and the company have forgotten. While we're, for the most part, skipping ghost stories, after all, this is Europe and you can't go 50 feet without tripping over a ghost story, we'll mention a couple of ghosty things in here. One of them is Platform Zero, the Chambery Ghost Station. One of the very first metro stations in the city, it was bricked up in 1966, remained abandoned, and then got converted into a museum in 2006, redecorated in period style. It's free, but entrance is limited to very small groups for the time being. Madrid has all sorts of cool things to see, like the Golden Triangle Museums, which includes the world-famous Prado, an indoor jungle, the gorgeous Gustav Eiffel-designed Atocha Railway Station, where the 2004 bombing attacks occurred, many, many markets, a world-famous nightlife that includes rooftop bars, the Tupperware Bar, which is crammed with 1970s and 80s kitsch and quite hard to find, very good food, an entire Egyptian temple dedicated to the sun god Amun, called Templo de Debod, from 2200 BCE, which was shipped block by block to Madrid in 1968 to save it from being flooded by the newly constructed Lake Nasser in southern Egypt. There's also a bit of the awesome world-spanning narrative art project Kamixathir here, which is a series of 140 plaques in 30 countries created by Amos Demetrios. They tell a story of an alternative world that's just behind or beneath our own called Kamixathir. 
here in Madrid at the Plaza Santa Maria Soledad Torres Acosta in the Malasaña district, there's a plaque to La Plaza de la Luna, a gateway to the Umbrosphere, which connects all shadows on Earth. It tells the tale of when Nobunaga Ventreven used a portal here to find the singer Eliala Mining to save the world with the beauty of her singing. The Festival of the Subtracted Moons also took place at this spot, and there is a secret message hidden in the plaque. See if you can find it. You can learn more all about the entire Comixathere project in a previous travelogue episode where we went to Atlanta, Georgia. Elsewhere in the Comunidad de Madrid, there are a couple of other oddball spots. About 30 kilometers south of Madrid, in the small town of Titusia, population 1200, there is the Cave of the Moon, or Cueva de la Luna. Located 10 meters beneath a restaurant, which has the same name, this is a series of catacombs accidentally found by the restaurant owner Armando Rico and his brother in 1952. Archways, plastered ceilings, chambers and chapels topped with domes all covered in strange symbols. Catacomb, the ground beneath the restaurant. Though a lot of the work seems to be Renaissance, no one really knows where the heck this underground complex came from or who built it or why. Oh, there's been much speculation. The complex seems to be laid out in the shape of a cross, so some think it might have been a Templar meeting space. Perhaps they took over an earlier spot used by Romans, who had taken over an even earlier spot that had been used by the Celts. That sounds like rather typical historical layering that you'll find all over Spain. Armando has his own ideas, which he has jotted down in a book he wrote about, The Cave of the Moon. He notes that it seems a scale model of Spain to him, with certain chambers and so on corresponding to above-ground locations like Toledo, Alcala de Aneres, Oran, Alcala, the former Carthaginian port city of Cartagena on the Alicante coast, and the Algerian city of Mers el Kivir. He extrapolates from this that the complex is supposed to be a representation of the entire planet covered in mathematical and historical symbols built to focus hidden energies to transform the world for the better, which is quite sweet. Many visitors do report feeling a strong energy of some kind, though for some, this manifests as feelings of dread and terror. Ladies are told that they should hit the door leading down to the cave three times before entering, and then go down into the dome and relax for one minute. If all is okay, they can continue exploring. People should also bring flowers to leave in the cave. Other people, of course, see conspiratorial notions hidden in the dimensions of the Cave of the Moon and its wall scrawlings. And others think maybe it was just a warehouse or storage area that bored people have decorated in idiosyncratic fashion over the centuries. At any rate, if you go to the restaurant and ask the son of the owner nicely, you can go down the stairs and see the cave for yourself. But only a little bit of it is still open because a large part of it collapsed in 2019. 40 kilometers to the east, there's the even smaller town of Ambita, population 382. Just one and a half kilometers southwest of town, there is the very weird Monumento a los Ojos, or Monument of Eyes. Three arches covered in tiles, and on those tiles, various depictions of eyes, like more than a hundred pairs of eyes, and other symbols, phrases, and figures. This is the brainchild of writer and traveler Fernando Diaz Falcón, who maybe thought it all meant something deep and profound. 
He worked with a local tile maker, conducted research in the 1960s to find depictions of the eyes and drawings of famous people throughout the ages, like the eyes of Cleopatra, Louis Armstrong, Danny Barcelona, who was a drummer in Armstrong's band, Charlie Chaplin, pianist Arthur Rubinstein, the poet Antonio Machado, the princess of Monaco, a woman holding a jug, a camel, and a lot of other things. After some time, however, Falcon got bored with the whole thing, and it fell into disrepair. It's an overwhelming, very odd monument to something. You can find a link to a PDF of all 171 images in the episode notes. In the southwest suburbs of Madrid, linked by Metro Lines 10 and 12 in what is essentially another city of 172,000 people called Alcocón, there's a museum to glass art and a clump of Gothic Revival castles in a park called Park of the Castles, or Parque de las Castillos. These were built in 1917 in a sort of Saxon style with some French influences. King Alfonso XIII used to throw parties here, and during the Spanish Civil War, Franco and his boys used these castles as their HQ for their capture of Madrid and as a firing ground for rockets filled with pamphlets, which they launched at the Republicans. The castles fell into disrepair, but have since been renovated and are now a pretty cool museum of contemporary art. But we're interested in events that took place here in June 1967 when a flying saucer was seen over these castles emblazoned with a symbol of three vertical lines joined by a horizontal bar. This is a symbol of UMO, supposedly a planet some UFO folks say is 14.4 light years from Earth, possibly in the Wolf 424 star system, which is a double red dwarf system in the constellation of Virgo. Inhabitants of this planet are said to have been here on Earth since 1950 or so, and they have written various letters to various people proclaiming themselves interstellar emissaries, and sometimes they make weird phone calls in which they speak in a complicated code. Their Umite language has been analyzed and found to have very complex mathematical structures, indicating that the speakers of it are highly intelligent. A group of Umite fans formed, calling themselves Friends of the Space Visitors, who would regularly meet at a bar called Antigua Café La Ballena Alegra, or the Old Café of the Happy Whale in Madrid, not far from the northwest corner of the park that has the Lucifer statue. Umite fandom slash worship spread throughout Spain and France. Various, quote, researchers tracked down other sightings, tales of people who'd been contacted by the Umites, and pretty soon it became quite the thing indeed. Much was written about the complex language, and some noticed it seemed almost to have Indo-European roots, suggesting perhaps the aliens might have been our progenitors, or at least have been here on Earth before. French physicist Jean-Pierre Petit claimed he made advances in both cosmology and magnetohydrodynamic propulsion using information from some of the Umite letters. This Umo stuff had been around for a couple of years at least, but this UFO sighting in 67 over the castles cemented it in the minds of some. The object was seen and photographed by a man named Jose Luis Jordan Peña, who, in 1992, finally admitted that he made the whole thing up. In fact, the earlier letters and telephone calls were also his idea, which he and a few buddies perpetuated for laughs. The Spanish word humo, spelled with an H but often said without, means smoke, so that should have been clue number one, he says. He also says he randomly chose the Wolf 424 star system from a star catalog and then used things he learned on his various travels to places like France, England, and Mozambique to construct the Umite language. 
He and a friend faked the photo of the UFO using a model they had built and nylon thread. He now says he regrets what he calls his experiment. Except he didn't regret it that much since a few years after this 1992 confession, he then said the Umites had asked him to claim it was all a hoax because all of the attention was hindering their surveillance activities. But then, in 2010, he again about-faced admitting it was all not true, and he was both gratified and annoyed at the many imitators and pranksters who had taken his Umar ball and run with it over the years. Except this time he said it had all started when two doctors from the U.S. had approached him and paid a salary to him to carry out a sociological experiment. This was a variation on a story he told friends earlier in which he said he had been contacted by two CIA agents to run this experiment who wanted to see if people living under fascism were more gullible. So while the whole UMO affair was kind of a big deal in Spain and France, it was pretty much ignored elsewhere in the world. And with Peña's confessions, the whole thing would seem to have gone up in smoke, if you will. <laughs> Except there are some people who still believe, and in fact the UMO thing has been classified now as an UFO religion. It's interesting to note that the Happy Whale Cafe in Madrid, where the original group used to meet, is listed on Google Maps not as a cafe, but as a place of worship. It gets three stars, which is the result of one five-star review praising the phalangist founder Jose Antonio Primo de Rivera. The phalangists were the Spanish fascist group who used to hang out there. And then a one-star review complaining about the management of the cafe. Catalonia. With 5.1 million people in the greater metropolitan area, Spain's second city is Barcelona, located in the fiercely independent province of Catalonia, or Catalunya, where they have their own culture and traditions and speak their own language, Catalan. The name Catalonia might come from an old word meaning land of castles or maybe Celtic battle chiefs, but probably comes from the Catalans, who either came from or displaced proto-Celts who lived in the area. They spoke Catalan, which is a Romance language related to Occitan, a language that almost became the dominant language in France to the north. The capital of the region is Barcelona, a name of which comes from either an old Iberian coin called a Barcano or a Carthaginian general named Barca. It is known as the City of Counts, and it is my favorite place in Spain, at least that I've been to. Incredible food, great drinks, including a thriving gin and tonic scene, and the weird local concoction known as leche de pantera, or panther's milk, which is a mixture of gin, condensed milk, and ice, sometimes with cinnamon dust and brandy added. There's amazing nightlife, a great beach, the astonishing architecture of Antoni Gaudi, a wholly unique take on Art Nouveau, and which includes what just might be the most amazing church on the planet, La Sagrada Familia, which has now been under construction longer than it took to build the Great Pyramids of Giza and is slated to be finished in 2026, so they say. There's also the almost perfectly designed Ishampla district, and so very, very much more. In fact, if housing weren't such an issue in Barcelona, I would seriously consider just moving there. While Madrid has what's called a ghost station in its metro system, an abandoned one that is now a museum, Barcelona has a real ghost station. Rocafort in the Aixampla on the L1 line. Here, 
actual ghosts have been seen by many, many people. In fact, TMB workers try to get out of working here at night and will only do so in pairs. Apparitions have been recorded by CCTV cameras and many people claim to have had conversations with people dressed in old-fashioned clothes who then vanish when the person turns away for a moment. I know, I said no ghost stories, but Barcelona is filled with haunted spots and this is one of the best documented ones in the world. Off to the west, just north of the massive avenue known as the Diagonal, near Parque de Pedrables, there's the Torre Girona, or Girona Tower, part of Barcelona Tech University. This former church now houses another object of veneration, the Mare Nostrum, one of the most powerful supercomputers in all of Europe. The whole place is now the Barcelona Supercomputing Center, and this is pretty much the only working supercomputer that is open to the public. The Mare Nostrum has made breakthroughs in weather forecasting and climate modeling, human genome research, protein simulations, astrophysics, geophysical modeling, and the creation of new drugs, including AIDS vaccines and cancer-fighting radiation treatments. It has been called the most versatile supercomputer in the world. The current incarnation, Mare Nostrum 4, gets up to processing speeds of 13.7 petaflops. For comparison, the fairly new laptop I wrote, recorded, and edited this episode on has 16 gigabytes of RAM, and a petabyte is a million gigabytes, so a petabyte is about 62,500 of my laptops. The Mare Nostrum is equivalent to 856,250 of my laptops. It can perform 13.7 quadrillion operations per second. But it's not the fastest in the world anymore. Since it was switched on in 2005, it has been surpassed by several other supercomputers, and it's not even in the top 10 anymore. Right now, the fastest computer in the world is the Japanese Fugaku, which boasts a whopping 415.5 petaflops, 30 times faster than the Mare Nostrum 4. Is this one of the supercomputers helping run the simulation that we all think that we live in? Maybe. Will it become an essential part of Skynet in the future when the machines take over? Perhaps. Is it a tool of the new world order, however you define that? Well, you tell me. But this supercomputer you can go and see and learn about, though you do need to make an appointment and group size is limited to 30. You must bring nationally issued picture ID as well. They also have talks, lectures, online classes, and a virtual tour you can take from the comfort of your own home. Link in the episode notes. Heading towards the water between Plaza de Tetuan and Parc de la Ciutadella, where there's sort of a local take on the Arc de Triomphe, you can go to the Arus Public Library. This was the home of playwright and journalist Rosend Arus, which he used for political meetings with his fellow Freemasons starting back in 1888. And a year or two later, part of his home was made an official Masonic temple. Many of the city's top influences at the time were part of this Masonic Lodge, and they came up with a number of ideas for improving the city along Masonic ideals, including radical new ideas for the extension project to the city known as the Eichampla, a grid of roads alternating with wide avenues and chamfered corners, making that district both drivable and walkable at the same time. After Aurus died a couple of years later in 1891, friends and fellow Masons turned this place into a library, inaugurating it in 1895 with the focus on the history and ideas of Freemasonry, workers' rights, anarchism, and Sherlock Holmes. 
not a combination of topics I would personally naturally put together. From the 1890s until the time of Franco, they'd amassed a large collection of works on all areas of human knowledge. But then Franco came along and he was rabidly anti-Freemason. He thought they would foment disruption because they were pretty left-leaning in Spain. And of course, the whole movement was full of Jews. He had nearly all Masonic buildings in Spain demolished, but this one survived because the people running it in the late 30s closed it down and basically hid it. It had never been open to the public to begin with, and then they got together and systematically wiped out all documented trace of the library's existence. Big Brother can't destroy what Big Brother doesn't know about. After Franco's death in 1975, Masons started coming back to Spain and the library was once again opened. Today, it is publicly accessible and has one of the greatest collections of texts about Freemasonry, the anarchist movement, and working class history in Catalonia. The entrance also has the third version of the Statue of Liberty as decor. It's now out of the shadows and open to the public, mornings until mid-afternoon, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and evenings, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. They also have talks and other events, and you can take a virtual tour of this place as well. Link in the episode notes. Speaking of large institutions with agendas, a little further along in the Gothic Quarter, not far from the cathedral on Plaza del Rey, there's a stone coat of arms of the Spanish Inquisition, who once had a prison on this otherwise nice but small square. There on the wall is the remnants of the Tribunal of the Holy Office of the Inquisition, a cross, a sword, an olive branch, and a chain, which symbolizes the Order of the Golden Fleece. A scaffold once sat here in the square where executions took place, as well as the weird Inquisition punishment known as the auto de fe, or act of faith, in which accused people would have to don humiliating clothes and publicly confess all their sins. There'll be much more about the Inquisition in our later Spain travelogue episode. Next to the Chapel of St. Agatha on the square is where the executioner lived in what is still the smallest house in the city. You can go up the steps and look through a window now to the ruins of the old Roman city of Barquino. The Inquisition used this place for all their fun because the Romans had also used this spot for criminal trials and punishments. And well, traditions gotta remain tradition. Keep heading towards the water, head south, and you can go up to Monjuic Mountain, now covered in parks and many of the remains of the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. There's also the Joan Miró Foundation up here, dedicated to native son Joan Miró, painter, sculptor, and ceramicist. In addition to being a top-rate museum of the artist's work, there's what's been called the world's most beautiful but also deadliest fountain. This is the Calder Mercury Fountain. The Spanish authorities in the 30s wanted an artwork to commemorate the mercury mines at Almaden, which is in the autonomous community of Castilla Mancha, and which had been one of the greatest sources of mercury for more than 2,000 years, supplying about 60% of the world's total. They wanted to protest Franco's siege of Almaden in 1937, two years before the fascists actually ended up taking over. So, they commissioned American sculptor Alexander Calder to come up with something. It was unveiled at the 1937 World's Fair in Paris, displayed in front of Picasso's heart-wrenching painting Guernica, which had also been commissioned by the Republican government as a slap in the face to Franco. There'll be more about that in the section on the Basque region in our next Spain Travelogue episode. Calder's Fountain is simple but graceful, and it uses mercury instead of water. And you know mercury is toxic, 
like extremely so. Joan Miro ended up buying it and donating it to the foundation that bears his name. It sits behind glass, so you know, nobody can touch it because uh, it's mercury. To get there, take Metro Line 2 or 3 to the Parallel Station, walk towards the mountain for 20 minutes or so, take the Barcelona cable car up to the top, turn left when you arrive, go about 100 meters. The fountain is inside the foundation and it costs 13 euros to get in. About 90 kilometers or so northwest of Barcelona is the town of Cardona, perched on a hilltop that's almost totally surrounded by the Cardana River. The area is once a big supplier of salt thanks to an entire mountain of it nearby. Local artists use the unusually clear sodium chloride as material for sculptures. You can go visit the massive salt caves 86 meters below ground for 12 euros or opt for what they call a theatrical visit, a guided five senses experience led by brother and sister research scientist team Carlotta and Tomu Bartomeu, who wrote a book about salt use in medieval alchemy and who can trace their ancestry all the way back to the famous 15th century alchemist Guillaume Bartomeu. You can also sample weird hard salt pastries, a local treat. Also in the town is the thousand-year-old castle of Cardona, sitting up on top of a bluff and dominating the skyline. It is extremely well-preserved. Who knows, maybe it's all the salt. You can go on a tour for five euros and go check it out yourself. Or you can stay here because part of it has been turned into a hotel, Parador de Cardona. It's a pretty nice luxury hotel and actually surprisingly reasonably priced, about 130 euros a night for a single or double or get a whole suite for 250 euros. You might want to ask them if you can stay in room 712. In fact, you cannot stay in that room unless you ask for it. It is normally closed off and the staff refuse to clean it or otherwise engage in any maintenance in room 712 except in pairs. Because room 712 at the Parador de Cardona is considered the most haunted hotel room in all of Spain. We're talking noises, cold spots, bad dreams, tapping, things moving around by themselves, the feeling that someone's in the room with you, voices, and even visual manifestations have all been extensively reported and documented in this one room. Like so many that even skeptics come away from here thinking, hmm, maybe there really is something to all this ghost business. Legend has it that back in the 11th century, a local Christian woman named Adelis fell in love with a Muslim man, but her father disapproved, so he locked her in the Monona Tower in the castle complex, refusing to let her out. She eventually died there, and her restless spirit roams the halls, and for some reason, really took a shine to room 712. When the castle was undergoing renovations to turn it into a hotel, there were reports that a dog belonging to one of the workers sat outside room 712 and barked nonstop for an entire month. So, if you're feeling brave enough, you can sleep there in room 712, but you have to ask for it. If you're in Catalonia around Christmas time, you can partake in one of the oddest holiday traditions in Europe, Tio de Nadal. These are small logs that have eyes, a nose, and a smiling mouth attached to one side, and sometimes a little red hat. The logs been hollowed out, and starting on December 8th, candy, small presents, cookies, and a local nougat made of almonds called tarone are fed into the backside of it each night until Christmas Eve, and at night it is kept warm in its own little blanket. Come Christmas Eve, the little guy, now filled to bursting with treats and gifts, is placed on the floor in front of the fireplace and covered with his blanket. 
and household members now take turns beating the log while singing a song. Here are the lyrics to that song in English. Shit log, hazelnuts and nougat. Do not shit herring. They are too salty. Shit nougat. It tastes better. Shit log, almonds and nougat. And if you don't want to shit, I'll hit you with a stick. Shit log. And then once the log is finally empty, they throw it into the fire. Of all the stuff to unpack there, the one that gets me most is herring. Did Catalans in the olden days think that herring grew inside of trees? This is just one of the Catalan Christmas poop traditions. Another is the Caganer, a figure they add to their nativity scenes. This is a small figure of a peasant wearing a Catalan red cap with his trousers down, squatting and squeezing out a big turd. Caganer means the pooper. What in the name of all that is holy is going on here? Some say it's a fertility thing, the guy's fertilizing the earth. Others say it's a reminder of the grotesque nature of Christ's scouring and crucifixion, which, let's be honest, was not a very pleasant experience for him. And other people think it's just a weird sense of humor that juxtaposes the profane with the sacred. You can buy Kaganer figures all over the place, and many of them are made up to look like famous or powerful people. So maybe there's a little bit of old-fashioned mocking the mighty that used to be such a large part of midwinter festivals centuries ago. Let's face it, like aliens who abduct human beings alone on country roads, Catholics have always had a bit of an affinity for the butt stuff. In Barcelona, there's a sort of bullet-shaped glass oval skyscraper called the Glorias Tower, which looks very similar to the 30 St. Mary's Axe building in London, also known as the Swiss Rain Building. Londoners have named their bullet-shaped glass tower the Gherkin, which is also a wry reference to male genitalia. But in Barcelona, they have nicknamed it the Suppository. And that, as I have always said, pretty much sums up the difference between Protestants and Catholics. Valencia. Valencia. The third city in the country with 1.6 million people is Valencia, about 350 kilometers along the coast south of Barcelona. They speak a variant of Catalan there, which they insist on calling Valencian and which the people in Barcelona make fun of because it sounds hick to their ears. Valencia is the capital of the Comunidad Valenciana Autonomous Region, which includes Valencia, Alicante, Castellón de la Plana, Alzira, and Benidorm. The city of Valencia was founded as a Roman colony in 136 BCE, but the whole area has been inhabited since the Stone Age. Valencia is well known for being the birthplace of the amazing rice dish paella, the amazing drink horchata, which is different from the Mexican version, fantastic oranges, the city's covered in the trees, and a cathedral that supposedly holds the actual Holy Grail. It's got a gorgeous Art Nouveau train station and the amazing Turia Park, which is in the old riverbed. They rerouted the river some decades ago and is nine kilometers long, ending in the jaw-dropping city of arts and sciences, designed by Spanish star architect and local son Santiago Calatrava, which looks like something from either the very far future or from another planet. You may have seen it in several films and TV shows, including Westworld, Tomorrowland, Black Mirror, Doctor Who, Brave New World, and Intergalactic. It's a great city and second to my move-to list. They're also famous for making capes, and despite my wife's protests, one of these days, I'm going to buy one. If you happen to be in the area on the last Wednesday in August, head to the small town of Bunyol, about 35 kilometers west of Valencia, for the La Tomatina Festival. 
This is essentially a massive food fight where something like 40,000 people gather, and there are only 9,000 people living in the village, throwing 115,000 kilograms of tomatoes at one another. It all started in 1945 when some bored local teenagers decided that they would disrupt an annual parade of those weird Spanish big head figures, and things got so excitable, one of the big heads fell off. The person who was wearing that costume and lost his head figuratively, then lost it again figuratively, attacking everyone and everything within striking distance. A vegetable cart got overturned and soon people started throwing vegetables at one another and the whole thing devolved into rage-filled chaos. The next year, more youngsters, who thought the whole thing had been terribly funny, decided they recreate the food riot from the previous year, bringing tomatoes from home. The cops broke it up, but word got out, and the year after that, literally, Thousands of people turned up on that day to throw tomatoes at one another. And thus, a tradition is born. Franco banned it, but people did it anyway as a sign of defiance, which got many of them arrested. Today, it is a massive affair, and afterwards, fire trucks are needed to hose all the tomato pulp off the sidewalks and buildings. And there are parties well into the night. Think of it as sort of a running of the bowls for the more timid set. La Tomatina has been featured in the films we need to talk about Kevin, Spanish Masala, and the Bollywood buddy movie Zindagi na Malengi Dobara, and in the video game Tekken 6. Going over the 35 kilometers further west from Buñol to the town of Requena, a very old town with about 20,000 inhabitants. But go another 15 kilometers past that and you get to where the village of Conodilla once stood. Technically, the buildings are still there, but one day in the late 1950s, all 40 inhabitants packed their stuff up and left, leaving behind not a single living creature, not even an abandoned goldfish. And then they refused to talk about it for over 40 years. In the year 2000, a local magazine finally managed to get some of the former inhabitants to speak. They spoke of being terrorized in the town by a strange series of noises, whispers and mutterings out of thin air, the sound of chains being dragged across the floor, the fearful cries of children, screams coming out of the well, and shadows moving across the walls even though there was nobody there to cast them. For a while, the disturbances were confined to a building they dubbed La Casa del Ruido, or the House of Noise, and La Casa de los Gritos, the House of Screams. But one terrifying night, the sounds and shadows roamed the village at large, occurring in people's houses and on the streets, and nobody got much sleep that night. The next day, they had a town meeting, packed up all their belongings, and left. Church authorities were alerted, investigated, and concluded a poltergeist infestation, or perhaps, they said, a type of goblin that likes to perform mischief. Church authorities also noted similar events reported in the village of Las Corrales, about 20 kilometers to the northwest, Penan de Albosa, 14 kilometers to the west, and Mas de Caballero, 40 kilometers to the north. Researchers wandering the site with equipment in 2017 noted a drop in geomagnetic readings around the buildings, the House of Noise and the House of Screams. While it all sounds a little bit like the Spanish TV show 30 Coins, former locals were reluctant to give too many details, and this of course fueled speculation among the conspiracy-minded. Perhaps the whole town had been abducted by aliens and experimented on. Maybe it was part of some bizarre geomagnetic flux in the earth because the poles were about to switch. Maybe the government was conducting mind control experiments or testing sonic warfare weapons. Three other villages in the region, Fuencaliente, 
El Matutano and Puente Catalan were similarly abandoned around the same time. Down south, about 40 kilometers northwest of Alicante, between the villages of Sax and Vienna, there's another abandoned place, but this one had noble intentions. The colony of Santa Eulalia was started in 1886 by Antonio de Padua y Saavedra, Count of Alcudia and Gestagar, intended to be a self-sustaining socialist utopia that could be a model for creating smaller alternatives to big cities with all their crime and pollution. The colony had its own mills, factories for processing flour and alcohol, shops, a church, a theater, and a casino, as well as modern-for-the-time housing for all workers and residents, and of course, a big old mansion for the Count himself and his family. The colony thrived until the 1930s in the Spanish Civil War, when the fine balance they'd managed to strike was permanently disrupted by supply chain issues and the constant threat of warfare. By 1940, everyone in the colony had left, except for the Count and his family who remained behind, living in their giant mansion until the 1960s when they finally ran out of money and were forced to leave themselves. Today, a handful of people live there once again, though most of the buildings have fallen into disrepair and been taped off. You can go see it, and there are even a couple of pretty good restaurants there. In the nearby town of Saxe, with almost 10,000 people, there's a nice castle and an art museum in an abandoned house. Abandonment seems to be a theme in the region. And the larger town of Vienna, which has 33,000 people, has the odd distinction of being the second whitest municipality in the Alicante province, for you geography nuts. One of the richest ancient treasures in all of Europe and the finest in Iberia was found here, the treasure of Vienna which was 59 gold, silver, iron, and amber Bronze Age objects from around the year 1000 BCE, which is now housed in the local archaeological museum. There's an 11th century Moorish castle, a nice church, and the town is also home to the largest Moors versus Christians festival in the area. This is essentially a historical reenactment, a battle between the Moors who'd made Iberia their home for 700 years and the Christians who were hell-bent, or maybe I should say heaven-bent, on claiming the entire peninsula for Jesus. The whole thing goes on for five days and always ends with the Christians' victorious spoiler. The annual tradition started as far back as 1474, and it involves much more than just historical battle reenactments. Parades, lots of partying and drinking, sort of a carnival Mardi Gras-style celebration that goes on for a week, all in addition to the simulated warfare. This all takes place in this town in the first week of September. And just like that, we're out of time. I have at least 30 more places in other regions of Spain I'd like to take a closer look at, but I'm afraid they're just going to have to wait for a future travelogue episode. In the meantime, I highly suggest you go to this amazing country, chock full of history, beauty, a completely unique cuisine, and a very civilized approach to life. And of course, a fair helping of high weirdness. Thanks for listening and Feliz Viaje! Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast and if you like what we do, donate via our Buy Me A Coffee page. Adios. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.